Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Osher Ginsberg podcast. I'm Osher Ginsberg. Thanks for being here. This is episode 95 with Naomi Simpson. You can find her on Twitter at N-A-O-M-I-S-I-M-S-O-N. Uh, follow her on Twitter because you're gonna wanna you're gonna wanna talk to her after you hear this one. Uh, if you're brand new, welcome. Please subscribe. You can subscribe in SoundCloud or uh, iTunes or the podcast app of your choice. You can also join on the mailing list, osherginsberg.com. That's where you'll find every single episode. And if you email me back to the mail out that I send each week, I write back to everyone. Send osher email at gmail.com. Hoping that your week is good. Hoping whatever you're doing this week is good. If you're in America or the Europe, the Europe, <laughs> hope you're enjoying the summertime. Um, if you're in the Southern Hemisphere, I uh, hope you're staying warm. I hope your week is good. I got to be honest with you. I'm, uh, I've been slipping a bit lately. As I mentioned last week, I'm up against some fairly robust stresses at the moment. And uh, I can't really talk about it, as I said, because other people are involved. But I found myself, you know, waking up earlier and earlier, which, you know, again, I'm impressed that the stress is breaking through the medication. That's that's pretty good. Um, he's tenacious. I'll give him that. But, you know, I know what I have to do when that turns up, when that starts happening. I'll call my doctor. So, um I had a chat with my uh, my meds doctor today, and I'm having a chat with my talking doctor later on. Um, I know from experience, unfortunately, terrible experience that I can't ignore these things because they do grow into massive, giant, all-consuming things that end up destroying whatever it is you've got together at this point. So yeah, as much as I wish I was handling all of this, I'm not, um, but I know what to do, so it's off to the people who I pay large amounts of money to help me. And, uh, anyway, got to do it. You can't drive a car with, you know, a leaking oil sump. You know, eventually it's going to run out and your engine's going to explode. 
as much as you'd like to ignore it and get where you're going, you got to stop. <laughs> so that's what I'm doing. Anyway, so yeah, happy notes. Let's talk about my guest today. She's amazing. My guest today is Naomi Simpson. I'm really excited about getting her on this show because she has found a way to combine her passion and her purpose with her company, Red Balloon, and was, is without doubt one of Australia's most successful entrepreneurs. Redballoon.com.au brings people together, brings people together with unforgettable experiences, you know, like V8 driving or cooking lessons or skydiving. They, they basically help make it happen. They facilitate experiences. Naomi is a wonderful woman to be around. She's a brilliant keynote speaker. She's one of the sharks on the Australian production of Shark Tank. And she's a, a LinkedIn influencer with over 750,000 subscribers. She's very wise. She was voted Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011. Her book, Live What You Love, is a bestseller. She puts her money where your mouth is, I tell you. Red Balloon, the workplace that she's created, the company she's created, it was voted Business Review Weekly's best places to work for five years running, 2009 through 2013. Naomi, her life and career is full of ups and downs. It's full of bright days and dark days. And through this conversation, you'll hear what things spurred her onto success and what things got her through the tough times. I promise you right now, you're going to want to get your notepads out or open a note up on your phone because she just drops wisdom left and right from the moment I hit record until we wrap up. I would ask you one favor is that uh, while you're on Twitter, she's at Naomi, N-A-O-M-I-S-I-M-S-O-N. Just reach out to her on Twitter. Let her know you heard her here on the show. Uh, I think she's got a great voice. I think she has a message that more people need to hear. And I'd love it if you could give her the support and let her know that you would love to hear more of her. Um, because I'm trying to find a way to make that happen. I left this conversation thinking one podcast isn't enough. So... I need you to help me convince Naomi to get uh, that working because uh, she has no business not having a podcast. I recorded this show on a nondescript weekday afternoon. I managed to score a Rockstar Park on uh, Union Street in Piermont. And um, I stepped through the very, very bright red door, which behind you'll find Red Balloon's headquarters. And I spent an hour with the very lovely, the very charming and the incredibly wise Naomi Simpson. Um, well, I'm rolling, so here we are. Thanks for having me in your uh, office. I know you are the busiest woman ever. It's okay. It's school holidays. <laughs> what does that mean? That means my son's home from school. That means I don't know where my car is. <laughs> that means... <laughs> put a tracking device on it, mate. I, well, actually, I have. I've got a GPS in it, which you, know, you use for the logbook. But, yeah, I know where that car goes. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. can you quickly tell us where – firstly, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. For this. I'm really grateful we could do this. Um, where are we? This is Red Balloon. This is uh, what we call Behind the Red Door, Red Balloon World Global Headquarters. Nice. In, uh, in Harris Street, Piemont. Which is actually – it's in my old neighbourhood. When I first moved to Sydney, I lived at the end of the Saunders Street. Um, the channel told the 10 building, I think was about three months old yeah. when I first moved here in 99. This was all Shitsville. I know. When we moved here about, oh, we've been here about 12 years and we were one of the first kind of dot-coms to move to the neighbourhood and then Google and everybody else followed us. All right. So yeah, 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 yeah. They yeah. were like, where's Red Balloon? We need to go. Because <laughs> if you're listening from out of the country, Google's office is down the street and it's, uh, well, you know, they have a rainforest in one room. Yeah, yeah. Oh, 
yeah. as you as you do. Yeah, I do. Um, but you are the chief experience officer. Same acronym, different job title? Well, I started life at Red Balloon as the chief experience officer because it was a play on words of what we do, which yeah. is, you know, um, promoting and selling experiences. But also my first employee was uh, my head of security, Dexter, the dog, and he never did anything I asked. So being a chief executive officer just seemed like a bit of an overkill. <laughs> Dexter, who is? Right with us right now. So What kind of dog is Dexter? He's a spoodle. And he is on Twitter in case anybody wants to uh-huh. follow him because he's... Very insightful. He says things like, I wonder what the bone of contention tastes like. Mm-mm, that sounds good. So he's, you know, Dexter's, Dexter's world and uh, he, he, he commentates on all things interesting. We spoke of um, uh, stepdadding work. Um, mm. Bone of contention was not lost on me. I've been dropping some world-class puns in the last year of my life. Yeah, yeah. Just. That'd be daddy jokes. I can get her to leave the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I high-five myself. Yeah. That's great. Unreal. It's great. Yeah. I pull I pull them out. Uh, so, but you did as a play on the CEO, like boss lady. Um, who was the first CEO that you remember meeting? Oh, the first CEO I remember meeting would have been Lindsay Catamol. Yeah. Now, Lindsay Catamol founded a business called Aspect Computing, oh, I don't know, 30 years ago. And she's one of Australia's great entrepreneurs. And she, she uh, ended up exiting her business, sold it to CAS, which sold it to uh, Telstra. Uh, in the, you know, she worked in computing in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. Yeah, and she would have been the first first uh, CEO that I ever met. And what impression did she leave upon you? Um, she, that she was very forthright and, uh, but didn't mind laughing. Like she was very comfortable in her own skin. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's great. You know, she doesn't need to pretend to be anybody. You know, she, she just is. And I thought that was quite inspiring. She, right. she doesn't mind who she upsets or what she does. When she's set her mind on something, that's what she's going after. 30 years ago, we're talking 85, very different business world in Australia. Very business different world. And uh, she was working with IBM mainframes. That's how long ago it was. Right. So which, which if you've seen the last season of Mad Men is the giant box in the corner. Yeah, yeah. Exactly yeah. the last episode. It yeah. was like, oh, computing, what would we need those for? <laughs> Did you grow up in Sydney? I grew up in Melbourne uh-huh. and uh, moved to Sydney about 25 years ago. What, what part of Melbourne? I grew up in Camberwell and I went to the same high school as Kylie Minogue. Just for a bit of trivia for you. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> Did you know, was she at the school? At no, the same? no, she's a little younger than I I am. disagree entirely. Yes, we hate that. And then I went off to another school. I, I went to a girls' school for my last three years called Korowa and, that's, and I did go to school with Marina Pryor. So there you go. They got all the, all the vocal cords and I didn't. What was the high school like? Um, high school was uh, high school was not a particularly happy place for me. I um, why is that? I would hide in the art room and paint, and uh, I wasn't one of the popular girls, and I wasn't a sporty girl, so I would just do my own thing. Was that lonely though? Oh well, um, it only was when my art teacher, you know, I thought I'd be a famous artist, and she said, "Oh, that's interesting," she said. "I can see you famous after you're dead and starving in a garret until then," which wasn't the most inspiring thing that somebody's ever said to me. Well, if you're an artist and you're famous while you're alive, you're one of the rare ones. Let's <laughs> be right. let's be honest. And I still paint, but doesn't have to. You know, your passion doesn't have to be your profession either. So. We'll, we'll get to that. Okay, <laughs> let's not <laughs> rush to the end of the. We'll story. get to we'll get to that part. Um, what did you folks do? Oh, my parents are both career people. Um, my dad um, is a leading energy consultant 
And so mechanical engineer by training, started his own consulting firm, designing buildings to be energy efficient. And he's done that since the 70s. And he would save businesses a fortune on their energy bills and how they designed them. Mm -hmm. And my mother worked on the first computer in Australia in the maths department at Monash University, which is how I got to meet Lindsay Cadamore because she um, ended up working in in her business. And uh, so mum used to go off to work, you know, all dressed up in these fabulous suits. So I just always thought I was going to have a career. This is the, the the computers that take up a whole room with vacuum tubes and stuff? Oh, literally. Punch and cards? I remember them. And I used to help her with the pen, punch cards. And, and I would go to kindergarten with the printouts from the computer, you know, the big things of uh, computer printouts and say, my mum works in computers. And people go, oh, Is that the one that's in the Melbourne Museum? There's this gigantic room-sized thing. Yeah, I know that there is one. And I say I say my mum worked on the first computer in Australia and she says it probably wasn't. There was there was a few in, in academia at that time. But yeah, but we're talking just, like there was five in the whole country. Maybe. And so it was just semantics, you know, as far as I'm concerned. There yeah. wasn't a lot of people in computing in 1967 when she started. So your mum going to work in a suit every day, was she the only mum that you knew doing that? yeah. Um, but it was my normal and abs- it was absolutely my normal and I thought that's what everybody did. Until when? Um, until about a year ago. Oh, <laughs> you know, I was chatting to a friend literally this weekend and she, um, her son's just out of school and they had a mother's lunch and she said, oh, my gosh, what on earth are we having a mother's lunch for? What about a parent's lunch or something, you know, or being slightly inclusive because... And, um, and literally she was the only mum that worked. And I was like, really? Really? I, I, I found that just surprising. Um, you know, people make their own choices, but these are very highly educated women and they're making choices not to work. And, mm. you know, I, I just found that fascinating. You know, it's curious. It was, it was never going to happen for me. Right. Yeah. So it was quite clear, though, that that's, that was your path? It was my path. Um, am I, you know, there's always been something that has called me and, um, I've been, you know, where I've worked and before I started my own business, I was, I was so passionate about whatever I did. Yeah. So a high school, a lonely place, did you look for forward to university as like, that's where, I'll, that's where it's going to all be, right? I wish I'd, uh, yeah, I, um, I, I made a lot of friends in university, still really great friends, uh, still catch up with them, godfather to my, um, daughter and, uh, and uh, I made a lot of friends in university, but I was very linear about my study. That is, I was there to learn. You studied economics. What drew you to that? Yeah. Um, I actually wanted to do marketing and advertising, but in those days there wasn't really any courses on that. So, therefore, there was business management. And the only way you could do a sub-major was in the commerce um, faculty. And in the commerce faculty, you needed to do accounting or economics as a major to get a commerce degree. So I chose economics. Right. Accounting. Yeah. There's no market. Well, there's marketing degrees now. Like oh, up the wazoo. All over. Yeah. But, you know. Um, but it was such. It was. It was a sub. A sub. 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 Yeah. Major. It was one subject. Well, why marketing? What was it that drew you to that then? Well, because I wanted to be an artist. Do you remember Bewitched? Yeah. 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 Well, I wanted to be just like Darren. You know, who was an advertising. This is before Mad Men. Mm. And um, I, you know, I could. Which take- Darren? First Darren or second Darren? <laughs> it didn't really matter. No one really they cared. Were all just because they, you know, they got to draw pictures and people paid them for it. And I thought, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll become a commercial artist. And then my mother convinced me. She said, look, why don't 
don't you just go to university and commercial art wasn't an option and she goes well kind of marketing's kind of the other side of it what about giving that a go my mother has been a great influence on my life yeah and so university when 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 you were there I mean who was the first person that I guess gave you a clue that this marketing thing might be for you that you've got something that other people don't yeah it was probably uh, quite a few years after university when the first my first job out of university was in New York and I yeah look let's get to that how did you get from <laughs> university yeah. I mean we're talking mid to late 80s it was I'm the guessing mid 80s mid 80s and I was working for IBM in New York uh, in the mid 80s how did you even get the job from Melbourne they had an internship program and they would take um, a student from a university, and there were 72 of us from all around the world. So it was part of this kind of internship pro- program that was run by an organisation called ISEC, A-I-E-S-E-C, and I got one of these um, these internships. How did you find out about that? Uh, yeah, through, uh, when I was at Melbourne University, a friend of mine was at Monash University and she was part of this student association called ISEC. And she said, why don't you start it at Melbourne? So the first thing I ever started was actually this um, student association. That's why I met so many people at uni and had so many buddies at uni was through um, a student association. That's one of the things I say to the kids now, meet as many people as you possibly can, especially at uni. You never know where they're going to end up and, you know, they'll always have different insights and you'll see the world differently. So through that student association, I got this job in New York and um, and it was, it was, I had no idea how heady it was, you know. I just thought it was normal. <laughs> Again, that was just normal. So it's all good. I, so we're talking full... Wolf of Wall Street, New York. We're talking mm. mid-80s, late-80s New York. Yes, seriously. Like no. we're taking a helicopter to golf. Yeah, yeah. For the Money afternoon. Money was no object. Yeah. object. It was just. Did you see some of that stuff? Oh, yeah. Not so much because I was an intern and on an intern salary. But I did find it fascinating. I would go out every night, every night. You know, it was either to the theatre, to I think it was called Studio 54, you know, that was still there at the time. Wow. So, um um, and, you know, drinking margaritas and frozen margaritas were so exciting at the time. And all those good-looking, tall, Ivy League Wall Street guys. And, you know, with an Australian accent, I'm not joking. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so cute. You're just like Olivia and Newton-John, you know. What do you know for the summer? <laughs> Come to Amaganza. Come to the Hamptons with us. Yeah, and, and you know, that was the time of Crocodile Dundee and... That was pretty much all that anybody knew about Australia in those days. So mm. It was pretty funny. But you worked at uh, IBM's World Headquarters, which is in the World Trade Centre. It was in their World Trade Centre. In their World so, Trade Centre. No, but I did have my 21st birthday at Windows in the World, which was the restaurant at the top of the World Trade Centre. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. It's, it's, it's bonkers to, I mean, I, I was there that week that it all went down. Wow. I was in New York that week. But mm. what did you I guess, what did you learn from your time in New York? Did, did university prepare you at all for that? Were you? I remember my first day at working at IBM, I was really very scared. I was very nervous and I was wearing my Fletcher Jones suit, uh, you know, and, and I, was, I, I was very concerned about how I would look and did I look professional. Not, not realising, of course, that it's actually, to be professional is to fill on your fulfill on your word like you know if you say you're going to do something just get it done and that's what professionalism was all about but you know literally in those days they gave us the ones over and said 
yes, you're dressed appropriately or no, you're not, you know, go and start again. They were very concerned about the, the, how, how you were viewed as an IBM employee, mm-hmm. how you looked. Wow, how did Fletcher Jones go? Well, I don't think it worked on Fletcher Jones isn't here anymore. But Wait, my, did my, it pass muster? It did. Oh, right. It good. did. And my, um, my boss was Belgian. He was a very small man and I'm tall and I also wore massive heels. And I remember him just looking up at me going, and with these heels I would, would have been six foot one. And he just looked at me and goes, oh, my gosh, they make you so tall in Australia. <laughs> so we were all like that. And I said, yes. And he used to get me to write all of the department's reports for everyone because I knew how to structure a sentence. Right. Yeah. Pre-word processing. Pre-word processing. Right. But just just how to construct a sentence. You yeah. know, uh, you know the basics of the English language. Right. Because yeah. I about, could write. Yeah, you could. Well, it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what did my mum? <laughs> my mum wrote to me the other day. There's a difference between your and you are, mm. your and your, uh, as the same as there's a difference between catastrophe and cat ass trophy. <laughs> My mum's such a pet. English is a second language. She's an absolute pedant for yeah, grammar, yeah, yeah. Um, as most people who take English as a second language are. She yeah. would never let me get away with anything. Uh, but so when you first got to New York City, when did you first get a scope of what was possible? Because there's only a certain, just by the nature of Australia, particularly at that time, unless you were in mining, mm. um, there really wasn't that kind of mega wealth going on in Australia, but when you get to New York and suddenly you're seeing this kind of stuff, when did you first get the scope of these people got that way because they made this stuff themselves? When did you get that idea? So, you know, as an intern, really, who I was hanging out with were the graduates, so the the young ones who were just starting out in their careers. And I did have, they're still friends actually, you know, some great friends who were particularly out of Notre Dame University and they were in banking. And banking was where the money was, you know, investment banking, Wall Street and all of that. So all of a sudden they were out of university and they had some money. Um, But accommodation was really scarce. And uh, there was four of them living in a studio apartment, you know, in bunk beds because actually accommodation was, uh, and that's not what they wanted to spend their money on. So it was about how do we look flash, you know, have the right suits, go to the right places, but really there was a certain thing you just didn't want to, you know, spend money on or show money. So, you know, you'd never own a car or anything like that. That would just be silly. So um, so really we, we were in the, we were in the, you know, kind of looking flashy, going to the right places, but actually we didn't really have any money. It was fine. Right. Had a great time. <laughs> so it was, but while it was, while you, I'm sure it was a fantastic time and I, I won't ask you about it, but I, we can put the maths together. Uh, but while you were there, you said that was, that was the first time someone said to you, some, of all the 72 people that came in here, you're, there's something going on with you. Yeah. Um, m- my manager saw something in me and he believed in me and um, he was a great encourager of me. And, I, you know, and if I fast forward to some of the other managers I had, they weren't encouragers. And I think having my first manager out of university believe in me and see something in me gave me a deep sense of confidence that was... Um, that I believed in myself and I had enough confidence to, you know, make suggestions or to speak my mind. 
uh, and that maybe wasn't always what was when I came back to Australia. That wasn't always called for, but uh, I was in right because mm -hmm. but it is so important to have a champion in your career. Yeah, as well as a mentor, but a champion, someone who's yeah. Saying, and I think I was very lucky because I saw that person first first up yeah. in my career. And um, you see, when you come out of university, you actually think you know something. You don't. Yeah. It's all just about to start. <laughs> and I learned more in the 18 months that I was with IBM than I probably did in all the years before. And just how things connect and how people work and so forth. Yeah. Who's? No, we're in a working office. That's the, <laughs> that's the red door. That's, 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 Keeps opening and closing. That's, that's, we're that's where we are. This is where, this is where we're in a busy working business. It's a, it's a big company. The door's yeah. going to open and close. So when, how old were you when you first, you said you met, the first CEO you met was this uh, a computer entrepreneur um, of Aspect Computing. How old were you when you first understood the concept of these people have big corporations but I could start my own thing and I could build my own thing, I could be an entrepreneur? When I got back to Australia, so I'd been travelling for three years and I came back and I started looking for a job and um, I got a job for a professional services company in an accounting firm and my mum said to me, she said, you do know you could start your own one. And um, I said, oh, Mom, what would I do? And she said, look, you've worked at IBM. You're getting a bit of experience. So um, I, I really, I, it didn't kind of occur to me. I thought I was going to be very much a corporate girl, very much a corporate girl. And I, but I wanted, when I had children, I wanted more flexibility. And, you know, that was still another, you know, 10 or 12 years away. But I wanted more flexibility but I still wanted a career and I didn't know how to do both. So then I just started my own business. I know, that's what I'll do. Right. It was literally like that. You mentioned earlier coming back from, from America, I know that when I'm there, I've been living there for 10 years now, the constant cultural translation that I have to do in my brain sometimes gets tiring. Yet if I've been there for a while, not only is the letter R all messed up when I return, but so is the way I speak to people and so is the way I go about meetings and things like that. Did you find that? I remember being in an elevator very early on. So I was in a lift. And Here in Australia? No, I was in the Over US. There. I just arrived. I thought, oh, my goodness, there's Americans everywhere. Oh, that's right, I'm in America. Oh, yes, that's right. And within a week I couldn't hear their accents. Uh. And so how quickly your ear adjusts. Um, was fast. That becomes the new normal, and you don't mm -hmm. you don't necessarily and you do change your words to make sure you're understood because you get sick of people. Oh, that's so cute. Or saying stuff twice. Yeah, yeah. But what about coming back? What about the way? Because their business is very front foot. Business is very hi, Ashley Ginsburg, Australian Idol, seven years. Like boom, boom, boom. You know, <laughs> people go Vanderbilt. So they pronounce their last name, so yeah. you're sure where they come from. Then you get back here and you. You know, you start a bit of those, like, hold on a second there, buddy. You won't have tickets, mate, you know. Well, I didn't come straight back to Australia. Yeah. So I then went to work in Europe and I worked in Copenhagen, which was beautiful and, you know, completely opposite the way they do business in America. It is all about relationship and it's all about getting to know people. And it's. Uh, and then I travelled for a long time before I even started work. So I caught the Trans-Siberian. I came overland from Europe to Australia via Mongolia. And travelled through China when it had only been open up to the West for less than two years. Were you alone? No, I was with a girlfriend from Denmark, a Danish girlfriend, and I travelled You took together. a Trans-Siberian Railway? Yeah, we did. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. What was that like? It was a, a very long trip. And um, it, it, was, uh, it was wonderful, actually, to sit and do nothing and be still. And remember, this is a long time before smartphones, a long time before anything. Took a pile of books, read them, 
you know, that's and um, had great conversations with interesting people. And the funny thing is, I don't know if it's still like this, but the Trans-Siberian, they always had the, they didn't change the time zone on the train. So the meal times were set because it was a Russian train. They were set to Moscow time. So you had your meals at Moscow time, whether you were away in the east or not, which was kind of curious and fascinating. That's the train where the train stops and everyone from the village or whatever comes to the train and you buy stuff out the window? Yeah. What would you say to people who were, you know, considering or thinking like that kind of adventure is just beyond them? Yeah. Look, I um, I did many of the great train journeys of the world. I did one in Cusco in, in, in um, Peru, um, you know, once through the Alps. It was just one of the things I did, one in Scotland. And there's a whole, there's, and I don't know why I did them, but it was a fascinating way to look at the world is out of a, a train window and, I, you know, s- slow mm. and experiencing and meeting people. Um, it was a wonderful way to travel. What do you get from meeting people in those parts of the world? When I lived in New York, my flatmate was Colombian. And I was a bit scared about Colombians because the only thing I'd ever read about Colombians was not good and it always had something to do with drugs. And uh, Felipe was my flatmate and he was a delightful young man also working for IBM. And I came home from work one day and his dad was sitting there wearing a cardigan, reading the newspaper with his slippers on, looked just like my dad. And I thought in that moment we were all just the same. You know, we've got parents and things. And it was probably the most wonderful experience for me at such a young age to realise, you know, our human aspirations are the same. It doesn't matter what culture we come from. Looking after our own, being safe, being able to feed our children. And it was a wonderful uh, leveller and equaller. And as such, it meant that throughout my travels, I've always been able to and excited by meeting and, and learning from other people. Do you find, though, when you come back to this country country just so much abundance in my opinion a lot of the abundance is taken for granted do you find it difficult oh unbelievably you know um i'm uh, i'm very challenged by the fact that depression and suicide is on the increase in australia when we live in the most fortunate time in the safest time and um that we are completely uh driven by you know fear and fear of missing out, fear of loneliness, fear of, um, and it makes me sad because we live in such a beautiful country and in a safe country. So, um, and you know whether that's my naivety or not, I don't, I don't know. But it, it, I feel very challenged by that. Yeah, I remember, I, and I was just talking about this this morning. Was it last year? I came back to shoot Bachelor. And um, it was during the election cycle here in Australia and I, I get on the plane in Los Angeles where they have a $6.75 minimum wage, no mm-hmm. health care. I get off the plane here and it's $17 minimum wage, free health care, and everything's shit. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I know, and we get four weeks annual leave a year. Yeah. And, hey! <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I also, you know, the sun shines. Yeah. And it doesn't cost a lot to go and sit on the beach and have some fish and chips and you know it really it's about what we see and what we don't see but and the thing in this time when we're so connected that people have the ability to see so many things of the way that others live yet we just kind of do live in this echo chamber where we only follow the people on twitter and instagram and facebook that we want to 
Mm. And so we don't ever really get exposed to the ugliness sometimes. So there's also the, you know, the fear of missing out, which is the FOMO, the whole thing's going on. So everybody thinking that everybody else is having a better life than them. And social media amplifies that because people only put on the photos of their great times. And if anybody puts anything that's not great times on there, people go, oh, what's wrong with them? You know, something's wrong. So I, I think that social media is amplifying our loneliness. Not it's actually, not, not connecting us in any way. And we're so busy connecting that we're disconnecting because we're forgetting to sit here one-on-one and just have a bit of a chat, you know. And um, um, one thing I really encourage parents to do is be truly present with their children. We work. I've always worked. I've been busy, busy, busy. But when I'm with my kids, put away the smartphone. Mom, we didn't have a smartphone, so it was pretty easy. But really be with your children, you know. Get on the floor. Play the games they want to play. Be in their world. And um, too, too often, and this is, sound, is going to sound judgmental, but too often I see kids in restaurants with iPads and I feel so sad because that is the time as parents we teach our children to create conversation. We teach them to socialise. And, um, and it, it concerns me that without demons and showing our children what it is to have a conversation, to discuss an issue, to have different viewpoints and it's absolutely okay, is by the time they become teenagers, they wonder why they're not chatting to them. And it's because it's not the role modelling they saw as young children. And you've got to figure out as a, as a kid, you've got to learn to say things that hurt people's feelings and then feel yucky inside because you know you've hurt someone's feelings. Like, oh, maybe I won't do that again. And then rather than suddenly be 18 and be in the workspace and not understand why you're in front of HR every five minutes. <laughs> Yeah, the development of your emotional IQ is very important and yeah. that comes through experience. I'm sure someone will build an app for it. Yeah, yeah, thanks. <laughs> That's really going to help everything. You, have, you worked at many places before you started Red Balloon. One of, one of them that really took my eye was Ansett Airlines, which was an airline that no longer exists in Australia. Mm-hmm. Were you there at the end? No. I was there in the 90s, mm-hmm. the early 90s, and I was there when um, it went We do the industry was being deregulated so um which is just such a you know you can't imagine this concept that the government used to say how many airline miles could be flown you can't imagine that now but why that's would how they it was. do that yeah it was a regulated industry who knows why but clearly it didn't make any sense mm. so um and i would also work there in the time where the pilots first chose to strike and then resign and we didn't have an aviation industry for nine months so it was a massive time of change and um, it was also um, at that time Sir Peter Abels and Rupert Murdoch owned ANSET and a lot of people have worked there for a very long time when, um, when, you know, from the days of the founder and going through that cultural change was fascinating to watch. Hmm. Um, You know, people used to say, oh, what would Sir Reginald done, you know, as if he was still there. And um, they would judge the leadership based on what was original. Mm. It was a very interesting time, very confronting for many. And it was like, believe it or not, it was like being in Mad Men. I would go into meetings, um, all men in the meeting, door closed, everyone smoking. And uh, there wasn't any alcohol until after four. (laughs) Like literally, it was, and we had tea ladies and we had a word processing department, you know, a, a typing pool. 
uh, and uh, we used to communicate to the ports by telex. And people listening to this go, how old is she? You know, God, no, it's so like I started in television in 99. We were still using, it was digital cameras, but we were recording on actual tape. We weren't using hard drives. But the, the leading mode of communication was still fax machines. Yeah. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to teach your kids financial literacy but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. When I started, well, I remember the first fax I ever saw was when I worked at IBM. I thought IBM had invented it. <laughs> I have no idea. So there you go. There's something, I do miss though, there is something about faxes, there is something about the handwritten fax. There was it also a, used to get attention. You couldn't ignore it. It sat there yeah. until somebody did something yeah. with it. Yeah. Particularly if it was in someone's hand. There's something very powerful about that. There was a um, Helmut Newton, one of my favourite photographers, there's an exhibition of his in Berlin called Private Property. It was basically his office um, after he died. They left it in situ and they just displayed all his stuff. And there was an entire war of, fax machine, of faxes between him and Anna Wintour um, about organising shoots and, oh, Helmy, I, I really loved that jacket you wore to dinner the other night. Um, you know, is it possible that I can get one? And then Helmy's like... Uh, it's funny you fax this one's already been sent over in your husband's size, all in their own handwriting from their very desk. You just don't have that kind of personal uh, communication. Anymore. But they were framed on the wall. It was beautiful. How gorgeous. Yeah. And you know one thing I have kept is all those letters that I wrote and received. Huh. And I show them to my children. They go, oh, what's that, Mum? Letters. <laughs> <laughs> and that has all my travels and it's kind of like a diary of me writing to my parents all of these, these letters. Putting them in the post box somewhere on the Trans-Siberian Railway? Oh, yes, not a lot went from there. I, was, <laughs> I travelled in South America as well um, and I was in South America travelling for about three months and uh, when I got back to the States, I called my parents and my dad just strips off and he goes, where the hell have you been? I said, I've been writing to you. Well, of course, you know, it takes a couple of months to get a letter from South America to Australia so they did, hadn't received a word from me in three months. No wonder that was slightly it's worried. My, it's mind-blowing <laughs> to even conceive that a parent would let a kid go that. My, my ex-wife, her sister, travelled after the Israeli military, travelled all through South America, and they had a, um, a, a system where they would call reverse charges, call home, and they used one name if everything was okay. They used another name if everything wasn't. So if they used one particular name, is blah, blah, blah there to accept the charges? No, 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 she's not. Hang up. Everything's cool and groovy. I'll call you again in two weeks. <laughs> if only somebody had told me that, my parents might be far more forgiving. Than yeah, they but are. now if you don't make digital contact with your parents overseas every day, yeah, yeah. they think you've been abducted in a white van yeah. and you 
you know, we're never going to see or hear from them again. Never. Back then it was like, you know, disappeared off the face of the earth for three months off the grid. My God, there wasn't a grid. There wasn't a Well, there was. <laughs> But you just weren't on it. Oh, Only the very, very bad people were on the grid back yes. then, but now we're just all on it. Uh, so just but you founded Red Balloon, the building that we sit in, uh, 2001. It was one of the first big, uh, Amer- big Australian dot-coms. Did you see this sort of thing happening? I mean, 98, 99, there was that big bubble that all kind of went to shit. And then did you, did you have to f- – I mean, having someone who's, as you said, thought IBM invented the fax machine – someone who was typing, like the internet was one generation, I guess, kind of behind you. Um, it was one generation, actually, it was one generation behind me. I mean, my little brother showed it to me mm. and he was 14 at the time. I thought, oh, crikey, I'm too old already. I said that too. Yeah. I, like I literally remember the, uh, it was, I was working at Apple and we, at Apple we had a whole, you know, intranet and everything. And most people don't realise Apple's been around for 33 years or something. They think it's all all new. No, no. I worked there in the the 90s. I worked there last century. And uh, we had what was called quick mail and we all were, you know, connected and so forth and we had our own intranet and how we, um, what we call now an intranet. And I remember being shown the internet and thinking, oh, gosh, I'll never work that one out. I don't know how that's going to work. And um, that, and... I had an Italian when I was in 1996 and I worked from home for a little while and and that's when I kind of started looking at it and the whole, it was beginning to take off, but the whole real dot-com thing didn't happen until the turn of the century. It was around 1999. And by the time I kind of worked out, I, I left corporate life and I just started freelancing as a marketer and by the time I worked out what I wanted to do, the dot-com crash had happened and I was like, oh, bugger, I missed that internet thing. What a shame. <laughs> it's all over. But, um, you know, all these things are a matter of timing. And so what was it that, the, you know, what was going on in your life when Red Balloon started? Well, I had two small children and um, I thought I would start a dot-com that I could sell experiences and I could do, I could play with my kids in the day and I could work at night. How's that going for me? <laughs> I don't. I well, don't you know, know, it sounds. Here's the thing, and I don't want to, to belittle it, but it does sound like one of those when I drop the kid off at school. There's probably that on a poster on a telephone pole next to the kiss and drop off point with a little call this number yeah. uh, for a work from home. And exactly. Sounds like that kind of business. I know, and um, funny you should say that. I, I, Oscar, I dropped him off at school not once, not twice, but three times on pupil-free days. Oh, can't you take him here? <laughs> to do. You know, the kids ganging up on me. Why do we have to go to bed at 5 30? Because mum's got work to do. Off you go to bed, you know. So um, I, uh, it, it was funny though, because there, there was so much to learn and getting even the business model right. In those days, in 2001, which, you know, it's nearly 15 years ago, there was no such thing as gift cards. They were handwritten gift certificates. So what I was doing was aggregating a market, a disparate market of small businesses, giving it a brand and then an electronic way of doing gift certificates and ultimately we moved to gift cards. And and so it really was um, quite disruptive in terms of a technology, but I didn't think of it like that at the time. I, I didn't. I just I wanted to do something that um, unless there was the internet, you couldn't do it. So and 
You know, there's Red Letter Days in the UK, which was probably the first, but it was a catalogue and call centre business in those days. And catalogue and call centre was never going to work in Australia. So the internet gave an opportunity for all sorts of industries and that was one that I just thought, right. And in the early days of the internet in Australia, we had great businesses like greengrocer.com or Shoplast, but ultimately you could still get the milk up the road. So they weren't disruptive. They were evolutionary, not revolutionary. So I think one of the reasons we were are successful is one, it was timing. You know, it was an industry that was looking to be um, aggregated. Uh, secondly, it was about the brand. You know, the people see the brand, they once they get it, they remember it. It's colourful, it's interesting. And we're very, very consistent on the brand messages still are. Um, and uh, also there is a whole notion of reduction of stuff. So as um, our cities grow, we begin to live in smaller and smaller places in apartments. We don't have a place to put stuff. And uh, one of the fastest growing industries at the time was um, self-storage. That's because we've got so much crap. And I just thought, well, you know, do we really need to import something from far away, put it on a shelf, then store it, when actually what we want is spend good times with people yeah. and do stuff. When, when you started, you, you, where did you get the capital from? Poor capital. Right. So $25,000 of family savings. That's, so, a, that's a lot of, that's what kind of conversation was that like with your husband? <laughs> Honey. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> so, well, how did, did it come? Did it come? Did you just sit him down one day, or how did it go? Well, um, I was a freelance, freelance marketer um, at the time. Had a business called Bright Marketing, and that was doing reasonably well. So, what I did was take the profits from that business, which were effectively family savings, and set them aside. And I took those and um, invested the money in the in the website. And so. You know, and at some point, it was a shared agreement, but it goes, it's a lot of money, you know. And we launched in the first week of October and we didn't have the first customer until December, two months and four days. And that's a really, really long time when your husband's going off to work every day, coming home, how's the project going, sweetheart? No customers today, maybe tomorrow. So it was a very long two months and four days. Yeah, you had, if I read it right, you had 300 sales in that first year, mm-hmm. less than one a day. Oh, yeah. How did you keep your chin up? Uh, you know, I'm, uh, I'm unbelievably positive, like always, always have been and always will be. It's kind of the way I'm constructed. But the, the, everyone was telling me it was a good idea. Oh, that's a great idea. And I'd just look at them and go, could you buy something? Like even my mother, could you buy something? <laughs> and they go, oh, yeah, sure. But then they wouldn't remember. And when you're building something and you're developing a market that hasn't been done before, you've actually got to educate people and take people with you on the journey. And um, it was just, so it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when, as far as I was concerned. And I was that pig-headed about it. What was the tipping point? The tipping point was 15 months in. So the first thing I had to do was give up my freelancing, which happened about six months in, because I didn't have any time. I, I just... If, if this baby was going to fly, she needed love and attention. Gee, that, would and, have been, that would have been grim, though, like months eight and nine. Yeah. You're a long way from month 15. <laughs> I'm sure that 25000 has disappeared by that oh, point. I spent the whole lot on the website. Like, it disappeared. And then it was 15 months. So it was the next Christmas that all of a sudden we started getting traction. All of a sudden, 15 months is not all of a sudden. But, you know, we're getting traction and we're making some sales. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this could work. This really could work. Then I had to look after the experience, the experience, the brand essence, the customer experience, and make, make sure, because I didn't have money for promotion, had to make sure that people spoke favourably of it, the whole word of mouth thing. Yeah, and that obviously 
played a huge role in marketing. It did. But even when we launched, like we launched before social media. Yes. So Google was only a baby at the time. So it was Google, one of four or five yeah, yeah. search engines. But also the, the uh, Johnny-come-lately, there was Ask Jeeves and there was, um, uh, there was a bunch of them that disappeared Info now. InfoSeq. Um, yeah. They all existed. They all existed and they've, uh, they, they've kind of disappeared. So you could say, well, we've been pretty slow on the uptake actually. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a, but a lot of people would have given up. A lot of people would have probably given it maybe a year yeah. to push that next five months, though. Yeah, and, yeah, it's interesting because there's been a lot of copycat companies who've come and gone. Like, they've come and they've gone. But um, I love it and I enjoy it and I enjoy the people around and I continue to learn, so I keep doing it. Yeah. yeah. You're very much, though, as, as far as... Uh, Excelling experiences, which have been scientifically proven to stay with you longer than the new telly because of um, hedonistic habituation. Oh, look at my fabulous new TV. Oh, yeah, there's something on my TV. There's nothing on TV, you know, within a week. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Even though you just spent nine grand on it from Harvey Norman or whatever. Yeah. But, oh, that time we went skydiving Hmm. will stick with you forever. So there's two groups of people. Yeah. There's those who've skydived and those who haven't. Right. Yeah. Well, I haven't. I'm in the group that have. All right, I've been up in a plane but not jump. <laughs> you think they're perfectly good to have a ride in. <laughs> well, I was doing a radio thing. I was doing a radio thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. That was interesting. That was like my second week in radio. I'm, I'm down 10,000 feet in the plane with a sitting on the floor. Of it. Anyway, uh, it was a weird day. It was a very, very weird day. But you're obviously, you're quite interested in, in the business of happiness. When did you, when did you come to have that? It's actually the notion of well-being yeah. more than happiness because happiness is one of about, you know, 23 or more emotions that we have as human beings. And, you know, when I hear parents say, I just want my child to be happy, actually I want my children to be resilient, responsible and respectful um, because ultimately happiness is not a sustainable state. It's one of the many. And if we don't know rain, we don't know rainbows. But what I do believe is in good times and a shared experience. So depression and suicide in Australia is on the increase in actually most Western societies. It's the number one cause of death in men under 25 in this country. Yeah, and it's usually because people are feeling isolated and alone and nobody gets them. So I just figure if we can share an experience, what's on our bucket list? What's something we've always wanted to do? And you give that to somebody and you do that with them, then this notion of feeling connected and we did something together, a sense of achievement, sense of accomplishment, whether it's jumping out of a plane or swimming with sharks or anything else or just, you know, going for a massage or mm-hmm. a chocolate tasting. It doesn't really matter what it is, but the shared experience in that moment, that good time, it's what we talk about. And those memories is what we cherish as human beings, our, our ability to connect. And that's why I believe in it. So, um, you know, we talk about happiness, but actually we're overstating it. I, and when I look at the workplace and the workplace we've created, it's about creating a, a workplace that believes in well-being. Because I think if I look after the well-being of the team, then they can look after the well-being of our customers. So when we look at well-being, there's five things particularly that we look at. And that is the first one is are they connected? Do they believe in what we're doing? Do they feel a part of something? Secondly, are they learning and growing? Because if they're learning and developing, they're far more likely to be able to give to others. Um, the other one is that they're physically healthy. And so we do a lot around making sure that we're, you know, great food or 
um, yoga or whatever it is to, to really look at people's physical well-being. Fourthly is about recognition. That people, if you're proud of what you do and somebody notices, if you go home feeling like a winner, like as not, you'll come back the next day and you'll feel really good about yourself. But the fifth one is your ability to give. And that is when we contribute to others, then we feel good about ourselves. So we've created a volunteering program in our community where we can go and serve our community because people here feel fabulous when they get to support um, other people. They support us. And that's the way it works. So if I take care, as an employer, if I look after those five areas of well-being, then people love what they do and they're able to love our customers. As a Speaking of the give, and uh, a few episodes ago I spoke with Ido Leffler, who's Yes to Carrots and, and Yubi, which is a one-for-one uh, kids uh, uh, stationery company in the States. Um, he talks about the give being the core of his business model. The give is there first and then we build the business around it. You're one of the ambassadors, I guess, of conscious capitalism in this country. What are your, what are your thoughts about conscious capitalism? Uh, the, the name itself is kind of an oxymoron, and I talk about that re- regularly, and people love to kind of... But if, if, if when I say conscious, it means that you have considered it, that that means it's, it's entered your consciousness and it is a thought process that you've gone through. So the thought process of how do you want to construct your business model, what is it and how's it going to be? Businesses this century are going to be dramatically different than businesses last century. They have to be. They're transparent. They're authentic. People need to believe in the products they're purchasing. Uh, interesting that trans fats have now been banned in the US. And, you know, three years they have to be gone. They're saying that margarine is the worst thing that has happened to American health, you know, since time began. And yet we were sold that as a health food. So... You know, corporations cannot continue to deceive their customers. We live in a, in a time of transparency. So consciousness, when we think about consciousness, it's the thought process of who are we and what do we stand for. Capitalism means that we're making money. There is nothing wrong with making money. We cannot change the world unless we have the means to make the money. And ultimately, money is what makes the world go round. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Because if you look at some of the billionaires, and um, Warren Buffett particularly, and uh, Bill Gates who created the Billionaires Club, because now they get to change the planet. Because in last century, when people made their fortunes, they were 75 years of age and they donated, you know, Rockefeller and so forth to libraries and institutions. Whereas now that people are making their fortunes in their 30s, they've got a whole lifetime to make the planet a better place. And I think that's very interesting and exciting and it's never happened before in the history of human beings. It is. It's, and no, never in the history of human beings either have we been in a place where corporations are so large that they can act faster and possibly with more effectiveness than government which is Apple if you combine Apple Google and Microsoft they can change the way people think instantly yeah good if they wanted to no government can do that tomorrow no yeah because they remember they're also not democracies yeah but let's not talk about politics because I'll be here all day oh no no I'll I'll talk to you about that later you've um you've remarked on on occasion on some some things that you believe you've written that I believe that if it's meant to be, it's up to me. You've also mm-hmm. said that I'm responsible for my own well-being. Both of these lead towards self-determination or a self-determined course in life versus kind of sleepwalking through it and just getting what you're given. Were you, all, were you always this way? Yeah. 
I've always had a great, um, if I look at my core strengths, one of them is positivity. And I've always been positive. The second one, I, I, I by nature enjoy people's company. So I like to, um, you know, if I see a room of people that I don't know, I go, oh, fabulous, 100 new friends. You know, that that is who I am. And uh, I believe that we're all connected. I really believe that if you if you, we're somehow one species, we're not individuals all battling it through. So these core strengths of how I see myself um, have been the basis of all of my philosophies and what I believe in. And because I have four young people in my life, um, university, you know, finishing high school, university, and I, I see young people often in the world of should, you know, I should do this, I should do that. And the one thing I encourage people to do is follow their curiosity. What are you really curious and interested in versus what they think they should do? Um, I see a lot of very, very clever um, students who get great results then go into doing university courses that they actually don't even interest, they're not interested or enjoy, but because they got the high marks, they think they should do law or medicine. So I think if we can satisfy our curiosity and our passion, things will show up for us. So we have to do the work on ourselves first before we can work out how we want to contribute to the planet. So that's why I talk about passion. It's our passion, it's our energy, it's what drives us, it's what ignites us, excites us. And it is a physical energy. But when you get on the journey to purpose, purpose is how you want to contribute to others and how you want to make the world a better place and what you're going to do for others, what you're going to give. And if you can unite your passion with your purpose, it never occurs as work. It is just your calling. And quite often people don't do the work to find out what is their calling. What is calling me to action? What is my contribution going to be? They literally go, well, I should do blah, blah, blah because I got those marks or because I can get into that versus what their curiosity is speaking to them. What about people who, say, for example, listening to this on the train right now, they're on their way for another day of just hating that point of sale iPad, just smashing it in retail or they're going to pull on a headset in a call centre or they're just living paycheck to paycheck. They may be thinking, well, it's all well and good, these two people sitting in this room in Piermont <laughs> talking about follow your passion, but... You know, I've got a mortgage yeah. and I've got a kid that wants to go to dancing and, you know, if $400 bill turned up tomorrow, I wouldn't know how to pay it. Mm. What do you say to those people? So, therefore, you've equated your work to your passion. Now, work is a big part of our lives. So, if I give you the example of, um, of somebody I know who's a school teacher, he does, he, loves, he enjoys the kids, but it's not his passion, it's not his calling. He wants to be a photographer. So what he's done is he's taken himself off, he's done the courses, and on Saturdays he works as a photographer. So he gets to fulfil on his passion of, of art and he, he financially as well because he does weddings and all sorts. So he's a photographer on Saturdays but he's a school teacher during the week. So I say, look, do the work. Find out what you're interested in. You might want to be a world-class chess player. Um, I love Ted's, Todd Sampson's work about neuroscience because basically he's saying if you put your mind to it, you can do it, but you've got to tell yourself you can, power of positive language. So the first thing is to do the work. When you say you can't, you can't. If you say, I can't do this because I'm stuck in a job, well, then that's all that life is ever going to be for you. But if you say, well, actually, I love cooking. Wow, great. 
What are you going to learn? Who are you going to cook for? How could you start a little catering business? You know, with sites like Airtasker, there is so much availability for us to do other sorts of work outside of what is nine to five. Talking outsourcing, outsourcing sites. Yeah, the outsourcing sites and, and, and making ourselves available with different sorts of talents. Yeah. Um, just speaking of leadership for a moment, because I know we're running out of time and you're the busiest person on the planet. Um, I'm living at the moment with my girlfriend and, and her daughter, uh, which is lovely because it's adventures and stepdadding. Um, and she likes to role play a lot. And the latest game we play is choir master and student. I'm the student. She's the choir master. And we sing together. Very quickly, though, it degenerates into dictatorial shouting, bossy, bossy, bossy. And I'm, you know, very, very in trouble because I don't do the right thing. And it triggers me because it reminds me of people I used to work for. Um, What are your simplest thoughts on avoiding this kind of leadership if you do find yourself in a leadership role, if you do find yourself wanting to push people around, why don't you just do what I say? Yeah, so you're assuming that you're right. As that leader, Mm. right. So so if a leader's caused by their, their passion and their purpose, then they also understand that they don't know anything. So our job as leaders is to ask the questions. It's not to tell people what to do. The best and most powerful questions engage people to greatness. So I challenge you as the leader to never say anything, to only ask questions. They can be leading questions. They can be reflective questions. But try it. It is fascinating. And it is fascinating because that's how you engage people around you. So um, our job as leaders is to ask deep and hard questions, is to not tell other people what to do. Mm. We're all adults. In your circumstance, there might be an 11-year-old amongst that. She's trying to be an adult. That's the thing. She oscillates between adults. You can challenge her to greatness through just asking questions. Mm. Your job is to challenge her to greatness (laughs) through asking questions. I will. That (laughs) that I will do. Um, A lot of people would know you from all of your, your books and speaking but the majority of Australia's come to know you through Shark Tank. What do you like about it? I love Shark Tank. I'm surprised how much I loved it. So I was quite nervous about doing the program because you know I was I was confronted by it and but what a delightful position to find yourself in that you're now representing innovation and small business in Australia and that you can be a spokesperson on their behalf. And what gives us authority is the number of people that not only pitch to us in the tank but pitch to us all the time and how many small businesses approach us and, and, and come up. So what is delightful is the innovation comes from anywhere, everywhere, any age, any creed. It just doesn't matter. Innovation can happen anytime. And I feel very privileged to be in that position. I'm also very respectful of anybody who walks in because it takes something to be on national television, uh, especially in the day of social media when everybody can have a crack at you, you know, I don't like the colour of my lipstick. Well, thanks very much for that big contribution. I've only worked for 30 years in uh, leadership and small business. For <laughs> to be told that my biggest contribution is the colour of my lipstick, you know, thanks. So, um, so I feel very fortunate that I can represent that community, give it a voice, and all of us are. I, I, I am delighted to work with the other sharks. You know, we, we're like siblings. We battle in the tank for, for the deals and for whatever, and sometimes we look at each other going, where are you coming from? But there's a deep sense of respect between us, absolutely deep sense What of I respect. do love, having lived in America for a while now, I'm just seeing that entrepreneurial spirit there, and I've spent a fair bit of time in San Francisco fundraising and stuff like that, and I see that everyone's got an idea and everyone's wanting to execute. 
to see it. And I would go, why isn't this in Australia? Why don't we should allow, give The fact that this show in itself is giving us as a country permission. No, no, it is totally okay for you to invent whatever you want. And this is how you'll, the, you know, it's television, so you've got to get it out in a minute. But here's how the deal might work with investment. Mm. You know, I had no idea about that when I was in high school. Oh, no. None at all. One of the most delightful things is uh, my kids, my son, the, the, his friends are pitching me all the time. And uh, young people are thinking about, what can I do? You know, they're not going for the automatic. And given that's what I believe for in and what I stand for is people making powerful choices, being in control of their own life. Mm. The program for me has just given me a bigger stage to be able to make those statements. And um, I love it when people come, you know, they have a crack. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I think it's I think it's. It's fantastic. I love it. I really love it. Uh, you know, they call us the new inventors with money. And um, just so you know, I think this is really important that people know, most people don't know this, is none of the pitches go for less than an hour and, my, and some of the bigger pitches go for two and a half. So it's then edited to nine or ten minutes of television to, because we might ask the same question over and over and over again because we're looking for consistency. Mm. So we'll ask them the same question many times to try and get all the answers. And, you know, one of the ones I invested in, I watched it really carefully. It looks like I asked one question. I promise you that woman got the third degree before I put my hand anywhere near my pocket. I promise oh, you. Anyone that's, <laughs> anyone that's pitched knows that they go for longer. Yeah. Absolutely. They, and, and they have to because, yeah. you know, it's our money. And we, when we give our word, you know. That's I, it. That's it. That's it. You're in. So here we are. It would probably be, it would be remiss of me to not ask you about what it is to run a business with a family. Yeah. What have, what have you learned about that? You started this so you could work during the night and spend time with your kids during the day. Yeah. So um, my kids uh, have had a wonderful business education. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and uh, interesting because my daughter studied science and applied mathematics. So, But, but you know, I, I guess the thing is that um, when you include your kids in the, your life, what, all they want is your time. That's what they want more than anything. So even though I have always, I've been much busier than I thought I was, and they know why and they, they get it and they've, you know, worked holidays and they've, you know, they used to blow up balloons before they went to school. So they, they get it. And as long as they're included and they know what's going on, uh, so when you exclude your children, so it's one thing that I encourage everybody, and I talk about it in my book, Live What You Love, is when you can share your purpose with your children. And I use the example, I sit on it. I'm a governor of the Cerebral Palsy Research Foundation, and um, our, head of, um, our head of research, um, Professor uh, Nadia, sh she works in the neonatal unit, um, the Grace um, the Grace Unit, and she says um, to her children, you know, she shows her children what she does and she works with these babies that are tiny, tiny, tiny. And her daughter's saying to me, she says, Mummy, get to work. You've got to go and save the babies. <laughs> like they get why she does what yeah. she does. She's saving the babies. And um, I got to meet them recently and they're, they're grown up now, they're her daughters. But when your children get your purpose, they will support you in your purpose. So that's about being deeply connected to them. And understanding what their passions are and what they're curious about. Yeah. Having those conversations. So my life is very different now that I have this kid in my life because I can't. This young person. I can't watch movies where kids get hurt anymore. I have to cover my eyes in Game of Thrones. Never had to before. 
I know the last two episodes were unbelievable. When her friends at school, when people are are mean to her, I hurt. Yes, yes. And so I didn't expect any of this. Yet I look at the world now, I look at what automation's going to do to our workforce, I look at what artificial intelligence is going to do to our workforce. What would you what would you say to her about the choices? She's eleven. She's about to go into high school in New South Wales. What would you say to her about the choices that she makes through high school? The world you see her growing into. What could she do to prepare herself for a job market that we don't even know what it'll look like in ten years? Yeah. So um, that's when you look at the basics, which is your ability to communicate with others and your EQ. It is your EQ that will actually, not your IQ, that will make that will give you your abilities in the future. So how do you get along with people? Your ability to come to a conversation without judgment. And it's what I see the most particularly in high school students is they're very, they're very quick to put labels on people. Very early in this conversation, I said the same about myself. I wasn't a popular girl. I wasn't a sporty girl. These were labels that young people tend to put themselves on. The person with a high IQ doesn't put labels on anybody. They see the differences. They see the sameness. The irony is that everybody's wanting to stand out and be different, but not everybody wants to be the same. And if she can balance her ability to not judge and just accept people for who they are, then she will have a great future, whatever that looks like. Because we still, we, you know, as a human race, it is the people connectors that will be the future. Truly. Mm. Truly is. Mm. You're a gem for giving me this much <laughs> of your day. I just need 125th of a second more yeah. to take your photograph, okay? Oh, sure. <laughs> Thank you so, so much. Thank you. All right, no That was Naomi Simpson. How great is that? Follow her on Twitter. Let her know you heard her here. Let her know you'd like to hear more at N-A-O-M-I-S-I-M-S-O-N. Get her book. It's called Live What You Love. You can find it on Amazon and wherever you buy books. Um, and, of course, click click on to redballoon.com.au. Go and have an experience with somebody. You heard her. Don't buy stuff. Buy experiences. It's scientifically proven to make you happier. I promise. Hey, um, I've got to go, but thank you so much for being here. I couldn't make this show without you. Uh, making this show every week is one of the best things I get to do. So thank you for listening to it because I couldn't make it if I didn't see the thousands and thousands of people that to it. So thank you. If you're new, check out some older episodes. There's 94 others. Also, um, if you've if you're of the mind, uh, you could maybe want to check out Movember Radio, the other show that I'm working on. I'm very proud of it this week. Our guest is uh, I know last week my guest was Charlie Borman from uh, Long Way Round. He's got a hell of a story to tell. Really interesting. In the meantime, have a great week. Be kind to each other. Sleep well and dream of beautiful things.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.